So welcome, Rajat. First of all, uh, to the Builders Club. Thank you, thank you, Sohel. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, so for all of those who don't know, Rajat, Rajat is a Rajat is the founder and CEO of Data Sutram. Uh, it's an AI-enabled location intelligence uh, enterprise. It's a platform, and uh, you know he himself has been. Uh, you know, working or dabbling with the space of AI since the age of 19. And uh, he has worked with Future Group, Nirulas, Apula Pharmacy, MNC. So technically, I think, you know, uh, Data Sutram itself is kind of a, I would not call it a deep tech, but an AI-enabled, an AI-enabled uh, platform in itself. So we want to learn and know more about his journey today, along with understanding how exactly to go about building a B2B SaaS business. So welcome, uh, Rajat. Uh, you know, first of all, to the Builders Club, and uh, you know, we would want uh, to know a little bit about your journey and about you and what you people are doing now. Sure. Thank you, Sohil. So I'll just give you a bit of background, everyone. So we are a two and a half year old company working in the field of location intelligence. The idea of what Data Sutram primarily does is uh, we look at a location and then collect information on that location and try to drive business decisions on top of it. So uh, kind of we started three years back when I was uh, doing my graduation at Jadavpur University. It's one of the top engineering colleges in uh, the eastern part of the country. So here what we what we primarily do, what we were doing back in my college, I was working on a project with the government of West Bengal. Uh, it was called Matir Kotha and there uh, what we were mati kotha in bengali means the uh, you know mati means soil and kotha means conversations uh, with the soil conversations yeah, yeah thank you so well for those translations so um, you know there what we were doing there is we were using satellite data to kind of understand that what kind of uh, you know what kind of crops should be grown there in the land so that the farmers so that the government could incentivize the farmers with discounts on fertilizers and all to encourage uh, them to grow those crops so I think this was very interesting. I, I What I realized is an external data, something that was external to an organization, in this case, the government, was kind of being used to take a location-based decision. And I think that's where I realized when we were working with a lot of MNCs that, hey, all of them were taking decisions based on intuition and guts, and not because there was no data. And Sorry, not because they didn't want to. It was because they didn't have any other option. There was no actual data that could be used to take those decisions. And I think that's where um, the idea of data sutram started. Where you know we build those location databases, and then we built a SaaS platform on top of it, where companies could come in, log in, go into an area of their interest, look at the data, and take a decision. So we have been working across retail, banking, financial services, and pharma, um, getting our solutions out there, all based on data. Interesting. So how I mean. Uh, which all which all uh, domains are you people operating in? Uh, is it is it uh, uh, industry industry focused? Uh, all the solutions. Uh, so I mean, you know, we started us as a B two B data company, right? And the idea was that uh, although we are a DAS company, we want to go sector agnostic. That's the vision with which every founder starts off. I think somewhere in the line, you realize that hey, you need to dominate a sector. 
so we started as with the vision of sector agnostic and i still uh, hold on to the vision of being sector agnostic but at the same time i think we are going one by one so we were into detail we built our solution into retail scaled it in retail now we are taken into we're looking and experimenting with pharma and financial services got our first line yeah. of customers there now we are in juncture where we decision deciding that which sector should we go in deep i think that's where we are we have played across some of the sectors and some of the sectors we're looking at interesting interesting so this is a kind would you call this a deep tech company this is a deep tech company interesting now also you know since you said this and i wanted this to be a segue i want to understand uh, people assume that if you're building a deep tech company you need a lot of money or you know you need lots of tech people how just wanted to understand you know from that perspective how does uh, data sundra play out <laughs> and i think that this is a very interesting uh, point and i think one of the reasons uh, of building a deep tech company i think the the one mistake a lot of us do and i probably think that i also did is uh, we go out focusing too much on technology uh, whether you are being uh, you know building a deep tech company or not at the end of the day uh, your adaptation of your solution needs a market validation and i don't think there is a real need to invest into the technology that you're building unless and until you've gotten your first customer done till that point you have your first customer done i think you should not be building the entire platform out you should not be building the entire deep tech product out you should be building as much as required to deliver the solution once you've gotten your market fit that's when you really need to invest into the technology invest into what you're building so that it scales so i think the money part i think what what happens is it's a chicken and egg problem you need to build a tech so that you get a customer but at the same time there's no point of building a tech unless you actually have a customer uh, so i think there is a catch to it but i do feel there is needs of funds but not at the right start i think after a point when you know what you're going to do what the market needs that's when you need to uh, raise the fund to build the product out and and would you would you want to probably you know would love to understand the first first 100 days or the first 100 customers the first 10 or the first pilot that you people did how did you people go about it what stage were you in and also when you went for funding was it at a prototype stage was it at an mvp stage what exactly were the kind of things that you people faced just because you know majority of the people here are startup founders would really help if you help if you give that perspective sure sure so see i'll i'll give you an idea of how this thing works up mm-hmm. so uh, in case of a startup uh, whenever we when we started and when we started we were building a data company right the only thing we knew are the data sources and you know we we were doing data partnerships so a lot of the data partners mm-hmm. that we were having were companies who had the data but did not know how to monetize it uh, mm-hmm. we were the ones who were dealing with them so a, a huge part of our comp- our r&d of our sector happened when I, we were in college and we spent a lot of time uh, working through multiple data sets multiple exploring multiple data partnerships and as a result what happened is we gradually got a hang of it we gradually got a hang of it where we realized that okay here is what we have here is what we can do we went into the market we started talking to a lot of companies we tried to figure out that what do will they need this data or not and interestingly mm-hmm. this company started from a hackathon where um, you know that that time future group had opened these stores called easy day stores 
and uh, six of those stores had shut down. Now, uh, Kishore Biani had opened up a hackathon to students where they invited students to build and startups to build in solutions. So we had this sorts of data. So we went in uh, easy day stores and when we built in models, we won the competition by giving a solution where we proved that external data, that is demographic data of people living there and footfall traffic was contributing to the correlation of products getting sold there inside the shops. Now that's something we could do because we had the external data. Oh. We went in, mm -hmm. we got a solution match, right? So I think what we did with our first five pilots or customers or uh, in form of whatever you call it, hackathons, is we went into companies, we tried to listen to what problems they were facing and we solved that. And I think after you have five customers, you try to understand and five similar type of customers, which is very important, you understand the common part to it. So one of our investors said something in which I, uh, you know, I listen to very seriously and I think it's one very important is in a new sector, you always do one pilot. And that pilot is very important for you to go from start to end because you want to understand what they need, how you will approach it. And remember, when you build the product, that's not the end of it. When they start using it, they will give you back feedback. And then you need to make those tweaks and changes. And you need to have at least six months to one year of life cycle with your product and your customer, usually before you go on to your second customer, because otherwise you're rushing it. This is something I learned with, I learned with time. This is something I did as a mistake. I went, got to my first customer, went on to my second, got my third, later on realized, hey, no, I did a mistake. When we moved into new sector, this time I did one customer, I waited out, saw their output, and then moved on. So I think this is something we uh, meet, uh, like we often make as a mistake, which we should not do. You know, your first customer is very important to go from right start to end. And I mean, first, second, third is important maybe because first customer might take a lot of time and all. But one good end-to-end -end pilot is a must to get your market fit. I, I'll, I'll just quickly, you know, uh, give you an example also. Something yeah, that... Yeah. So, so we, you know, we started off with the use case of store opening. Okay, we were helping companies. Lenscard was our first customer. Helped them understand where to open stores. Moved on to Wellness Forever, where we were opening, helping them again open stores. The Wellness is a retail brand uh, spent across Maharashtra, Karnataka, Goa. And then COVID happened. They need, did not need to open stores anymore, right? But then they needed to reach out to societies to actually deliver their medicines, right? And the people did not could not grow, go to those societies anymore because there were restrictions, right? Now, they used to do manual service. So once they could not go to the societies, they needed to understand, hey, how could I know about the society? And we came in and used our data to find them out. After that time period, what happened is we developed our hyper-local marketing tool. So our new product came out after that one lesson with a customer. So it's not always that you need to come up with a product or a, you know, a version of the product. Your customer might actually help you create your, a better market fit of your product. So that is why I so, say first, second, third customers are so important. Yeah. And I think even before building a product, you basically have to go and speak to the consumer, even without uh, revealing what you are building, just to understand those, those pain points, because I think otherwise you'll be leading them. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just wanted to understand, so this is a B2B space, right, which you people mm -hmm. are playing in. Um, when you when you started reaching out, of course, your product was not completely ready. Uh, what was you know how how would I mean? Did you start off with uh, you know uh, people whom you knew, or did you reach out with a certain pilot demo? How exactly did that went? Hmm. 
so i just sent in a picture in the group uh, in the mm-hmm. chat it, i think this is very important for every startup founder to understand that there will be companies who will be pretending to in, be interested in what they want to do right mm-hmm. um and your first customer might be someone just like your first investor or your first team is very important your first customer is also very important because remember that customer can make you a service company also so it's very important for you to understand hey till which point should i go until which point should i not one of the yeah. first few early adopters or innovators as you see who actually took in our product as the first market fit were companies who understood technology were companies who understood analytics were tech friendly growth friendly and aspiring companies who had that hunger for growth because see they are the ones who are ready to take in a new uh, product or new innovation and adopt it because they want to bypass the competition and enter the market right so your first client now they can be an enterprise they can be a startup they can be anyone i will not say that the size of your client's company uh, payroll or their uh, revenue should be a factor to determine who your customer is but i think the attitude is very important see wellness uh, was one of our main clients wellness forever and we have completed around 1 uh, and 1/2 year cycle with them their companies directors were tech friendly guys who really understood and valued the even they did not use it they were used to sell medicines right but they understood the value of data they wanted to try something out and they wanted to adapt new things when we entered the other sectors our first customers were companies who are looking to you know invest into new things adopt to new things so that mm. way i think it's very important for a startup to understand that their first customers need to be growth hungry that's the first mm. objective i'd go by second objective mm. is if you are building a saas company or a das company in a b2b space it's very important to go into a company when they're doing digital transformation because otherwise it will be really difficult for them to do it because mm. for your product to really come in and be usable to a company they need to be undergoing a change they need to be in a changing process if they're already set if they're already happy it's very difficult for them to adopt something new so i think the timing is also very important and that is why you need to talk to the customers and see that where is the fit coming in and any cio can guide you towards that matlab i think this is actually this actually ties to your other statement very well ki when you start off just go with that one client because once you have that one you can flesh out the whole product with them and after that once that thing is ready where you know that chalo at least this product is fitting this this market which is this client i can probably find similar companies who can who will basically take the solution absolutely your first customer is very important your first customer is going to determine everything because they and it's very important to sometimes say no also because they might take you to a service route and i'm saying this um as uh, too many times because i've seen a lot of companies go down this route and become end them the day service legs for these companies so that's why that should be also very something that you should be careful about mm-hmm. interesting so uh, one more thing which i wanted to touch upon before we open the floor to the audience is around location intelligence Mm-hmm. it's a very interesting niche which you people have would love to know a little bit more about the applications and how different companies are using it sure so i'll come in with what is location intelligence and um, 
as the name suggests, it's intelligence on a location. But I'll tell you more about what kind of things contribute to it. Today, as the world emerged into shared economy, you have started to use Swiggy, you have started to use Ubers, you started to use food delivery and cab services and whatnot, which are all focused on, even your Amazon is focused on location, right? Your location has suddenly become very important. Although we are today moving into a virtual world, at the end of the day, you realize that your location is so important for your, you to get the necessary service, be it food, be it your travel, be yeah. it your uh, any requirement you have, right? So as we have moved into an economy like this, which is purely digital and so advanced in terms of virtual worlds, at the same time, something has you know, still remained important, and that's location. Previously, when the offline world, whenever you're making an investment, be it a house, be it a store, be it a building, a bank, every, your location was important. Today, when you're targeting customers, location is important, right? So what is this location data? One of the, there are six, four, five to six angles from which location data is generated. One is, of course, an on-street model where data collection happens through manual processes, which Google and all of these companies do. Second, there is satellite, which is satellite and drones, where you have multiple uh, layers through which you can get very accurate information up to one to five meter level. Third, you have your phone, right? Your phone is your biggest source of data because your phone, although is not giving out your personal identifiable information, that is your name and your phone number, but your phone is giving out everything else. The phone, your, your phone is giving out where you stay, where you live, where you visit, what kind of brands you visit, what kind of stores you go to. It's giving out everything, right? So your phone becomes a very important data player. So all companies can leverage that data if they do it in the right way. So if you go into, a, if, you, if you look at Wi-Fi's, right, every public space, there are free Wi-Fi's given out. Why? Because every time you're logging in, they're collecting data onto you. So I think location data is getting generated through multiple channels like this. And what we do as Data Sutram is we work with 250 such data partners and we buy in, we work in, we have our integrated API, sometimes we buy data, sometimes we have people on the ground. We overall collect data from multiple sources. And then we put all of it together into one place where uh, at a grid level or at a pin code level or at a 100 meter level, we give out information. Now using this data, on so this is a B2B data layer we have built on top of which we have given a SaaS layer to it. And here we are building our solutions into multiple sectors. For example, in retail, I was always talked about these two use cases is one is where to open stores, what kind of products to push where, uh, what kind of inventory should I be keeping in my store, where should I target customers, all have something to do with what kind of consumer behavior is given in a location, right? And that again is dependent on location data. Moving on into banking and finance. Uh, one of the key areas where we are seeing a lot of uh, need for location data across the country, across the world is today we are moving towards a credit-driven economy, right? We have lending, giving, lending happening extensively across India. For example, you have digital lending platforms giving out SME loans. You have banks giving out loans in five minutes, for 10 minutes. And as a result, what is happening is there is obviously a lot of fraud, right? Even e-commerce, for example, e-commerce, you have deliveries happening. And you, I don't know if you know, but 20% uh, of orders, even with the top e-commerce companies, do not actually reach the place of destination because of fraudulent orders. And, you know, th and this is not because they're, they're fraudulent. That is because Google's geocoding engine probably didn't work out. You know, they typed mm -hmm. it in a English, uh, you know, a Hindi plus an English mix, which is English. Mm -hmm. And 
Google's geocoding couldn't recognize it, right? So I think what has happened overall is whether I'm giving a loan to a location or I'm giving an order to a location or I'm delivering, delivering something, it all depends on what kind of data is there, which is going to drive my decision towards that, right? If I know that this area already has a lot loan defaulting, um, you know, fast track record, or if this SME or this retailer does not have footfall, then I would probably not give out loans there, right? Even if it's mm -hmm. a five minute roll, I could, uh, five minute uh, loan, I could just hit a API when the address comes in and I get a trust score saying, should I do it or should I not? Because Sybil is not there for all, right? So banking and finance is seeing location data as a tool to evaluate whether loans should be given out. On the other hand, if you look at, you know, e-commerce, I already mentioned, there's a huge problem with geocoding. And I really want, and I really wish someone comes out and solves this India's address problem because it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous problem. And even with the Flipkarts and uh, Amazons of the world in India, the address problem is equally a big issue with everyone, especially in tier three, tier four places. Um, the location yeah, again yeah. is seeing a lot of adoption there. Uh, moving on into pharma uh, or any kind of products there, today there are companies who just have a handful of data to indicate what kind of traction is happening. You know, there is a, one of the leading companies on prescription data today only has 10,000 doctor data on basis of which they're telling pharmacies what kind of products are getting prescribed where, right? Now imagine mm -hmm. 10,000 prescriptions in a pan-India level, nothing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So again, there's a huge opportunity in the market where there is no data and all of these sectors need data. If I go on to uh -huh. EV, today so many, EV, there's the India government and all of are talking so much about investment into electronic vehicles. Now in Germany, if you look at Germany, if you look at China, if you look at uh, US, and if you for, read McKinsey's reports there, Location of charging stations were so fundamental to even EV stations go coming up. Okay. Agreed. Because if charging station is not in the right place, then where will my, I mean, I'll probably, you know, fix if I have a, buy an EV car, right? Because charging stations, unlike petrol pumps, cannot be installed everywhere because they have a transforming issue and all. So again, it's a location problem. So, you know, I can go on. <laughs> the idea is every sector relies a lot on location. Uh, if you look wow. at COVID, Think of it, COVID, today, containment zones, number of beds planned in a region, everything again dependent on that area's information, right? So I think yeah. there's a lack of, lack of dearth of information in this entire country and entire world. I would say US and Europe, few countries in Europe are probably an exception where they have this kind of data. But I think there's, there's a huge gap in the market where there is not enough good quality data to really drive decision making. And that's where... That, that's where location intelligence as a field comes in. Hi, Rajiv. Hi, Meghna. Yeah, yeah, hi. Like, how will you know the accuracy of data? Like, there won't be any valid proof or something like that. Right? How can you know the accuracy of the data after collecting it? Uh, <laughs> that's something, you know, all of our clients ask us. and. Uh, I think, you know, firstly, if you had to compare zero with five, I was always greater than zero. What I mean to say is in a place with no data, some data is always better. So yeah. Accuracy, yeah. Comes in, accuracy only comes in after when, you, when you're comparing things that are already there, right? Even there's nothing, you get what you use, what you get. That's one. But of course, 
as data scientists and tech guys, we need to improve accuracy. And the way we do accuracy and the reason we don't don't use one partnership, we use multiple partnerships. And you know, we are a company who's worked with both Zomato and Swiggy's data. And trust me, you can use that and you can see that Zomato and Swiggy's data tell you something completely different. So what I'm trying to tell you is that no data, there's no there's nothing called absolute truth when it comes to data. If you if you look at a if you look at a place and if you try to answer yourself that can I look at a rent and come back and say this is an income place what is the income of a person in of a locality or of a place? I mean you have a diversity in that in there, right? So I think the accuracy here comes in from the angle of using multiple data. Whenever you are using multiple data sets indicating the same kind of things in a region, you can often detect the outliers. And by cross-mapping and by cross-correlating data, you can understand what is happening. And then, of course, at the end of the day, you have the on-street model. The on-street model is to take patches, do physical visits, do recce's and do a manual validation of the data. I think there is no other way to do it. One way is through you know, cross-putting multiple data sources indicating the same thing one with another and the other way around is to kind of uh, do a physical validation of some of the samples. Okay, like you go manually and do it and measure the accuracy. Yeah, so, we have, so we have on-street models on that. Okay, okay. We have recently seen that like there are many companies, like there are many startups like they send like surveys out there, like targeted people, and they get surveys filled by them. Like, will it be easy for data collection? Yes, I mean, I mean, surveys are only can take you to the point. So there are always a lot of limitations on there. But yes, you need you need on street models. I think one of the things that we have learned is on street models are very important. Okay, Kostov is back. Hi, Rajit. Yeah. Oh. Hi, Kostov. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, 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 my question is like an extension of the first question, I guess. How exactly do you judge profitability of an area? Because uh, it just sounds like a very, very complex task to me, you know, based on income, based on client. Uh, yeah, that's all Going on a like specific it. case, uh, you're looking at a specific used case or specific case study around uh, population income, is it? Yeah, no, I was looking at their website. And uh, one of the, well, I guess, features they give is pinpointing new locations based on profitability. And uh, I would just like to know how it works. So you know, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what happens is uh, any any idea, Gustav, how companies open stores? <laughs> yeah, that's a very the retail stores, right? The footfalls yeah. and the area yeah. uh, so which is the most busiest street probably they take a take a call on the basis of that any any guesses from the audience how companies open stores anybody who wants to pitch in uh, they look for similar uh, yeah. comp competition uh, absolutely whatever. absolutely all companies look at where their competitors are present and open the stores opposite if you look at where lenskart stores are <laughs> In your locality, you'll see that always opposite the Titan store. If you see, and I can tell you because I, I have seen that so badly. So, I mean, what we do is we kind of, the biggest challenge for a retailer is, see, they are making a lot of investment into a company area when they're opening a store. So, what we kind of try to do is based on where they already are present and based on how they're already, those stores are performing, 
we try to create a similarity of location we try to say that hey your x store is doing so good so in this this area is very similar to that area in terms of footfall in terms of traction in terms of income there so this store is probably going to do also this much based on competition so we create a sim just like facebook allows you to use a local like audience to target people who have similarly who better customers based on the features we look at your successful stores and kind of use a look alike location parameter to judge the profitability of a location if that answers your question akosto uh, yeah, yeah yeah if i might go one step ahead like even more specific no, don't ask me the algorithm no 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 no, no. <laughs> like just how do you judge things like incomes and uh, age groups because i'm assuming it must be very difficult in a country like ours to get get such things Yeah so you know what we do is we do use mobile data I mean when i use mobile data i do not really care if it's india or africa or uh, us right at the end of the day we have a but yes of course the data accuracy drops when i go into a rural place when i'm working in a village or in a tier 4 tier 5 town then my accuracy drops significantly so that is a challenge that is definitely a big challenge mm. okay guys okay yeah 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 uh, so question was <clears throat> you uh, take a sample i'll give you a scenario let's not talk, talk about in terms of what the companies are doing right now we'll take an example and i'll ask you specific questions how you take it further let's take an example that you have a brand and the the, uh, the brand is running stores and uh, you know it it is uh, everywhere and uh, specifically you are targeting people to buy one specific product okay uh it can be anything depending on uh, if you're selling in a particular season or uh, you know you're you're targeting for a particular you know period and then uh, you collect the data you keep it and also in the back end you run that data with every uh, upcoming setup that you are going to have later uh, with any product with that uh, company do you uh, do any such uh, experiment with that data do you specifically look into people's behavior or you try to find out a pattern uh, if there is any after the first experiment uh so siddharth could you could you just frame your question a bit uh, in terms of uh, i mean i got your point but what what exactly do you want me to answer i want you to answer do you do such experiment do you run experiments and then uh, you look at the data and you you know kind of backtrack Uh, so experiment on uh, experiment on customers data or experiment on location data uh, both both basically you'll have to have both uh, otherwise it's not going to work out okay so yeah so yeah i try try to answer uh, so see experimentation is a must right when you're working with data because mm-hmm. you don't know what you will get unless until you experiment for example mm-hmm. Uh, the entire feature learning process right which features which location features are important is something you can never know till you have actually done experimentation right we when we were working with a ice cream store in delhi ice cream company and there are very renowned ice cream company i'm not taking a name for the reason is uh, when we actually did the correlation mapping we saw the dentist proximity to those stores were driving ice cream sales in their company so that's an obvious factor now that we're thinking of it but this was not something that we could th- think of when we were planning our feature engineering right proximity of dentist 
is one of the million factors that could have come in to affect the sales of ice cream, right, in a place. So mm -hmm. experiments are the way you will be able to understand and learn things, right? So our entire feature engineering modeling is done in a way where we don't go in with any bias. We don't go in with a way that this sector works in this way or this customer works in this way. We have built models in a way where they take in all parameters and try to understand what's important, what's not important. When it comes about enrichment of a data using clients' data, and this is one of the biggest examples in lending, in banking and finance, it's very tricky because you can't store clients' data and reuse that, right? Because that's breach of privacy. That's your, when you take in a client's data, you sign an NDA saying that you can't uh, work on that except for it's the client, right? But at the same time, your artificial but intelligence modeling does. You're reaching to the point. You're reaching. I'm so sorry to uh, stop you right here. But you are reaching to the point. The question was not about the experiment. The question is, do you keep that data and keep running the experiments to find a pattern which is driving your uh, customers or the uh, you know potential clients towards you? Do you keep so basically, yeah, basically, I'll I'll just uh, frame what uh, Siddharth is trying to ask. Basically, whatever data you collect, does it become a part of a bigger bigger pool on which you can basically run more analytics? Am I am I right, Siddharth? Yeah, are you looping on that experiment? Are you keeping any backtrack of it? Are you, uh, you know, running another experiment based on the previous experiences? So all the data that we take in and all the experiments that we run are always stored back in our servers because, you know, prehistoric data and prehistoric yeah. analysis is very important when you drive uh, in the future, right? So that That's is, that, yeah, so, you know, footfall, store, store closures, all of these parameters are historic data, which is very important. The cha change in the trend of a location is very important also, just like the same way the current is. So, yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, the bigger question is, do you, do you feel like uh, the upcoming chains are a byproduct of your experiments, uh, which you ran uh, for, for, for a company or, you know, you, you ran experiment, you, you did something. Basically, you're talking about causality. If, yeah. If that if you have data, similar experiences you are getting, uh, you know, after you know, after a couple of years that you are a data company and you have uh, you know done a lot of work with a lot of multiple uh, you know uh, experiments and companies. What you uh, what I'm trying to ask here is, do you see any similarity? Do you see any uh, similarity in human behavior in uh, those experiments, or you are trying to you know drive uh, people, you know, like clients and uh, consumers? <laughs> through that previous experience uh yes i mean um, see i'll 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 give you a bit of examples onto this see um, where i say see that the causality actually is true and where i see previous experiments affecting uh, future experiments is one one small thing i could talk about and it's mm -hmm. called what i call the neighborhood effect when when there is something that happens if the proximity of a location in case of default, in case of behavior today, it is likely that it will affect the neighborhood tomorrow, right? And that is something that we're also seeing with COVID. When something is happening in Maharashtra or Mumbai, today, tomorrow, it's affecting Chhattisgarh, today after it's in Delhi, then it's in Calcutta. So I feel that causality is there, and we see a lot of behavioral changes happening across locations following a pattern. But at the same time, I think we have been in the business for too small a time mm -hmm. to say that to a large extent i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. a is there a pattern of course there is otherwise why create a model mm -hmm. on that b how effective yeah. is that model in the neighborhood 
I see that affects in neighborhood proximity and see. See, do I see an overall change in terms of human behavior yet? I would say we are still too young on that. But the last question is, do you see any uh, significant improvement uh, based on human behavior according to your experiments or uh, your experiences so far? Significant uh, improvement for the clients? Uh, for you as a data company, do you see that uh, your previous exp experiments and experiences are leading you to uh, perform such experiments which uh, can give you better results based on? Of course, of course. Of course. So, yeah. so, you know, the entire, entire modeling process is so important that you learn back what, is, what worked out and what did, and you can incorporate that in your next. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Uh, Siddharth, it was a fairly long but a very detailed uh, question. Uh, Harsh, uh, you can go next. All right. So, Rajit, I was keenly interested in uh, having some look at few use cases from your end, such as user acquisition and how you help companies in supply-demand gap, solving their supply-demand gap. Sure, sure. So, user acquisition is one of the areas uh, where we are working out in terms of micro-targeting, right? Currently, social media, your Facebook and your Google allows you to target based on the social media activity. Where we come in is based on mobile activity, can we help you target? So we, um, we use something called a mobile advertisement ID or an MAID through which, uh, we, which we track, which we give out for uh, users. So let's say a company can understand that, okay, uh, if, if Burger King today wanted to target all its customers who walk into McDonald's, they could just geofence McDonald's stores and then identify the devices which are going into McDonald's and then take those device IDs and target them on Facebook and Google with Burger King's ad. We kind of provide that kind of facility. At the oh, same wow. time, we also uh, you know, give companies an understanding of, uh, you know, in case of B2B targeting, or I would say B2B2C targeting, where you're targeting retail stores, you want to reach advertise to retail stores, you want to reach out to societies. We kind of understand, help you understand what kind of demand is there in that area, what kind of audience is that in that area, in a society, what's the income class, what's the kind of, uh, are there people who go to airports frequently? Are the people who go to brands, uh, you know, frequently to help a company yeah. understand whether you should target that society or not? So, you know, this is kind of hyper-local micro-targeting that we do in the user acquisition side. Uh, on the case of supply and demand, where we come in is, uh, let's say, a company who is planning a rollout of a particular product, right? What we do is we kind of map people proximity of those people to uh, different kind of stores, different kind of pharmacies, chemists, uh, groceries, or supermarkets, and help you understand that is there a demand of those kind of products there. And then your own data can talk about what's the supply saying. So we marry, so the demand side is created from our data, the client uh, supplies the you know supply data, and then the client can see the demand supply gaps into our platform and understand these are the areas on the map where I am losing out, where I need to tap onto. So that's what we do. All right, that's perfect. So, okay, so here's another thing. I mean, like, uh, I, I mean, in other ways, like, uh, if I figure out, so uh, you are into, like, localization of data, right? Such as, like, GIS and all, right? So uh, what you say about one of your competitor, like, locale.ai, which is by Aditi? So, uh, Locale is a SaaS company. They are in the field of, uh, you know, building uh, a software where in companies with a lot of internal location data can
can actually come in and uh, use those kind of tools where we come in okay. is slightly different we are a saas of course we are a saas company but our core ip relies on the data partnerships and on the data that we're creating mm. so we are more of an external data provider and our saas is to only enable customers leverage our data more whereas locale is more uh, working with companies who are sitting on top of a lot of internal location data and can leverage them more so i think that's slightly different mm. all right so basically what you trying to say is that locale is basically churning the company's data itself and uh, giving out the results right. from mm-hmm. that so churn data time, but right right but i'll give you a disclaimer harsh at the same time i think we are in a very early period of mm-hmm. location intelligence and i wouldn't okay. say that there is a very big demarcation between us locale or the two three mm-hmm. companies in the market because you know the state that we are in Tomorrow, all of us are going to do everything in this area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So, it's a direct competition, I would say. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like whenever, right now, like suppose if I am in Discord and there's a traffic noise behind me a lot, mm. so that I can turn the real-time voice reduction or voice removal with mm. the help of AI, and that thing can be sorted. Okay. Mm. So their problem statement was that, like. capturing different kind of uh, traffic voices is pretty difficult right because you cannot mm. capture them all at once so mm. can you re- replicate data with the help of ai so that like you know like it's just like it's so you're talking like about uh, you're talking about an uh, a data problem that you're saying that the source data is not yeah. available how to go about yeah a data yeah. question rajit yeah i think it's a very good question for because Uh, you know yeah. we work with a lot of uh, unstructured and you know dirty data what they call it uh, mm, exactly. because uh, because you know the entire the sources the data that we get from much most of the sources and and you know if if there are data scientists in this conversation they already know that uh, you know modeling in ai is all okay but if there is no data where are we going and i think one exactly. of the fundamental areas where a lot of ai today is working is to create data right create structured data location data and there the noise cancellation removal and you know we work with a lot of uh, i mean you've mentioned sound uh, data i haven't personally worked on a lot of sound data but uh, i have personally worked on a lot of image and a lot of text a lot of uh, kind of electromagnetic data where we we see lot of uh, noise in terms of structures and where where we do uh, where we what we see as a value is that while we churn data out what happens is after a point there's a pattern in the noise and if you detect that pattern in the noise then you are able to kind of you know eliminate it and create better data so yes it is possible at the same time there's always a fear of validation i think i'll go back to the first point on the is when you're creating ai to kind of create that out the question often challenge often becomes the validation how do you validate that mm. Mm. right So I think I think that that would be my take on it. Interesting. Okay, all right. I I feel it's, I feel it's a it's a it's a it's a premature state where we are still still challenging and still diffi- trying to figure out a solution to this. There are attempts, there are successes, but I won't say we are still there. Uh, to cut out this thing, this whole conversation, my simple point was that if we can replicate location datas, and then we can fine tune them to like. bring the accuracy of data model 
so is that possible so basically you are trying to ask if location data can be used to uh, optimize for this traffic wala use case uh kind of i think i think this would need a i could i i could not i could answer it in a yes or a no but honestly <laughs> i think i would need to know more on this and no no for that yeah so all right let's let's move on to next question then cool cool, cool. <laughs> thanks a lot all right okay okay so um i um, i actually you know i have worked a lot with data since i'm working for four three company uh, so we see like you know um, billions of data points but what i notice is uh, there is a lot of uh, data fudging that happens to get the results that one intends to get so like you mentioned there is no bias in the data asset right but there is always a user bias right that happens uh, at an engineer level or at a manager level whatever level you work on that is the first part of the question uh, so how do you set context in the content of the data that you get yeah the second part of the question is um, from a legal perspective and user permissions point of view right unless you have the consent of the users in different formats you know i mean geofencing um, we do it for a lot of enterprises and all uh, but obviously uh, at the end of the day you have to have uh, uh, the consent of the user and there are a lot of legal repercussions if you don't do that so how do you deal with that so two parts thanks thanks sir right so so that i think both of them are really important questions and i'll i'll answer the second question before i come to the first uh on the legal side uh, so the reality is that it's it's extremely important to respect privacy and even if i leave aside the legal angle it's a it's a i think any startup founder even if the laws are kind of uh, i would say kind of flexible in india i would say it's important to keep them in mind because tomorrow they are going to come in so where i where i see a very good uh, i mean an area where we could kind of improve is um, the case of geofencing if you are using a customers app to reach out to them yes you need permissions but you know what we do is we do not we are not the medium to reach out to your customer we are the medium who would say these are your devices which are active and our device ids could be reached out through facebook and google so we are not the end so uh, i would say arms to reaching out to the user we are the kind of just taking and we are not even tracking the users we are the middle people we are taking in data figuring out who we should reach out to and passing that information back so that the necessary person can so we do not directly deal with any kind of customers or any kind of people so that we need consent to take the data but yes our data partners are doing that and while onboarding a data partner we make sure they're all gdpr compliant that all passing uh, uh, taking on all all the necessary laws because we are uh, we are working with international clients as well and at the same time we need to maintain that as a standard across for companies so yes we do that in mind and although we are not directly into that uh, collection business of data uh, we work with the data partners so we do that in terms of um, you know in, while we, we we validate that while we onboard them Coming on to your first question, and I really love this question because uh, when we started giving out solutions to customers, the first thing they started doing is data fudging. They got some result that was not acceptable to them, and they changed those numbers. And then their managers came in. I think what we have to realize is this is not going to be easy at all because mm. one of the primary reasons what what is going to happen after data comes in as a regular process. is that is going to constantly keep on challenging every person who is working there right 
I mean, I do not want to uh, <laughs> take a, take this into a political conversation, but is the government really responsible if there are no numbers on the migrant crisis, right? It's as simple as that. Imagine an employee in a company, if there is no real data on that, I do not really care, right? I do not have to prove myself out. So when there is data that talks something, that indicates something, that hints at something, then of course, it's going to be a human tendency to kind of hit back at that because I would not be ex accepting it often. And that's a very big challenge any data science company is going to face because as you try to give out those numbers, answers in numbers, you're going to face a problem where you kind of, uh, you don't know what to do. And I think this is tricky. And this is something where I do not have an answer because we face that as a regular problem in terms of data fudging clients often go on to do that. So I would say, yes, it's, 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 it's one of our biggest challenges. And even though you are not doing the data fudging, your output can be fudged to some extent. And there, I think the more reliant and the more belief you have on data is the only way. I think it's a social problem which we need to solve, mm. where people need to accept data. It's less of a technology problem. Great. Sounds good. Sounds good. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Rajat, for the insight. We'll take one last question before we close off the discussion. Uh, anybody who has a question? I have one, actually. Hi, Rajat. So I have, uh, I have been following you on LinkedIn for a long time and I have read your article on your story, uh, like you and your two other co-founders. So like, as I have observed and seen that people build companies like after experiencing something like they work for, uh, they work with corporate for like two or three years, then they start, they start something. But one thing I liked about your company is you started it when you were in your final year, right? So like, what was what was the day like you were in, yeah. when you were in final year? So like, what were like the initial days uh, of your company? A, it's a very relevant question because you know a lot of people who here are students uh, students who are trying to build startups, and I guess you one of those has actually made it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, I think I'll, I'll I'll try to answer this as candidly and as honestly as possible. So okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's tough. Uh, we come from a, I come from a department which had a very good placement. We had uh, 58 out of 60 students. We had 60 students in a batch, and 57 students moved out of Calcutta and uh, joined jobs. 57. Uh, one person went to Purdue, and I think uh, I mean yeah, few of them also left their jobs and went for higher studies. But mostly we were a batch where everyone you know, went on to do the traditional job, higher uh, thing after college. And two of us, uh, me and Oishik, we were two of us from the department and Ankit was from chemical, when, uh, who kind of left out and started this company. And it's not easy. I mean, even after we raised our second round of funding, when uh, Ankit shared that message with his father, his father said that, uh, go and do an MBA first. So, I mean, it, it, it is a social challenge, it is a college challenge, it is, uh, and it is not easy mentally when you are uh, seeing your batchmen go out, batchmen go out and having a good life, and you are uh, coding, and you are trying to uh, find solutions and find products which you do not know where you're headed, because we didn't raise any funds in college, we were just closing off. But I think what happened in college is during the third year, I, when we started working with startups, uh, when I started working with a lot of companies also, uh, 
we we realized that you know we discovered this entire piece of location data back in our third year and in our final year we wasted the, i mean we spent our entire final year working on creating solutions for a lot of companies as service projects nothing product mm. in it just services but what we got is that we had the confidence that hey we have something which is in the need and which people are paying for and i think that really gave us the confidence and honestly if you ask me rithik we did not have the time to sit for our placements because we were mm-hmm. constantly engaged in projects and works we were servicing our clients earning money and we didn't think for once that hey should i sit goldman sachs or microsoft is coming should i sit for a job mm-hmm. or not we didn't think of that because we were busy and i think one of the things because we were getting that traction uh, and- honestly we didn't sit down and say and ever discuss with i never asked my two of my co-founders that will you sit for a job or not and not did they ask me i think it was all taken in confidence and taken in factor that we are not, neither of us are going to sit for a job and we didn't because we were engaged and we were doing it so i think mm-hmm. a lot of it is belief a lot of it is trust a lot of it is friendship a lot of it is is in the fact that what do you want to do it's it's a higher call and i think it's it's as as in, and whenever you're leaving a corporate job and doing a startup you're also taking a very important decision mm-hmm. exactly so i guess you know one of the interesting points here is the validation that you were already working on the projects Absolutely. you were not yeah. you were not thinking about doing something you were doing it hence Absolutely. you had the confidence and, and that this is going to and one thing is you know it's easier being a student to do a startup i personally somehow think is because mm-hmm. when you are a student you do not have the pressure of you know sustaining yeah. people but when you're leaving a corporate you're probably uh, you're probably used to a certain kind of lifestyle and then yeah. to take a hit on the startup is probably tougher so i don't think that you know i think the best way to experiment is when you're a student and i would really encourage that if you're a college student you should go out there and start up this is your time basically when what he means is go and start working on you know go and find and Hello? speak to the customers <laughs> instead of just sitting and building something does that answer oh, your question rithik yes 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 thank Hello. you very much rajat Uh, is uh, you know you were uh, the you were also recognized as under top 15 entrepreneurs from eastern india youth for business uh, your company is also based out of calcutta if i understand correctly right right um, so how's the work culture like in the eastern part because it's fairly different from delhi bombay bangalore what i know there's no watch there's no work culture in the eastern part okay don't say that <laughs> so who that who, who was that <laughs> that was harsh i just <laughs> muted him <laughs> no no i mean i mean i fairly agree with harsh <laughs> so <laughs> i'll 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 come in a bit to that yeah yeah so, yeah and we'll I, just end this on a candid note here so fine yeah yeah, yeah. so i think i think uh, the 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 issue here is that um i think it's again a chicken and egg story right if there is no corporate then who's going to fund your first project so if there is no corporate then how can startup ecosystem really take off mm-hmm. the entire reason bangalore became a startup hub is because there was a lot of corporates in there right mm-hmm. the entire reason mm-hmm. mumbai was a corporate startup hub because uh, there's a lot of companies there right so i think the eastern part of the country especially calcutta faces from a crisis where corporate where there's a lack of business in there and i think that is one of the reasons that that, that is kind of um, as a hurdle in the startup but today you know and i i as someone uh, from calcutta 
I am very much drawn to the city of where I come from, and as a result, mm. I've been very, uh, I would say, adamant to the fact that I'll not shift my headquarter out of Calcutta. So even though all our businesses, all our clients, our investors are Mumbai, Bangalore-based, I keep traveling. We have a Mumbai office. We keep it happening. But at the same time, I want to build it out of Calcutta. One of the reasons being, I want that culture to start. Mm-hmm. And I see that there's a lot of attempts. It's not like the attempts are not there. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of people. And if you look at the if you look at the community in Mumbai, in Bangalore, there's honestly a lot of Bengalis out there in a lot of fields who are doing mm-hmm. absolutely. So I, so I absolutely. think I think I think what is what needs to happen is this chicken and egg story for Calcutta will continue. Or for the eastern part of the city will continue unless and until there's one big pillar around which mm. this can sustain. Today, the mm. ITC and the Imamis, we need more companies out of Cal. And if there are Kolkata people here, I would I would tell them that yeah. hey, today you need to come back and build it out of here. Only then will this place rise. It's very easy to say. Uh, I mean, although I would say there's no work culture, I mean it's very easy to say and blame a place. Yeah. But I think it's very important to take accountability. And not leave it up to the government to do it. You should have to do it yourself. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, I guess that's a very valid point, and it's really nice to see a fellow Bengali building something out of Calcutta. Uh, <laughs> all the very best to you, Rajit, for all the work that you have. You're doing some amazing work, and and uh, you know we really look forward to the success of Data Sutram. Thanks. Any closing comments before you uh, before we close this off? So uh, I mean, thank you, everyone. I think it was great interacting with all of you, and I see a lot of founders, a lot of exciting people, and I love the questions. It was great on a Saturday night to talk to all of you, and I wish yeah. you all the very best as well. Yeah, this is this is one of the really good audiences that we have had. I hope the questions were not, uh, you know. Didn't offend really you anyway. People are very, very candid. People are very <laughs> candid here. I, I love the audience and the questions. <laughs> that's okay. fine. That's fine. Thanks a lot, uh, Rajit, for your time that you can oh, sure, basically sure, sure. share it across. Thanks a lot, everyone else, for joining in on a Saturday night. Uh, you know, any questions you have, uh, I think uh, you can put it down here in the water cooler chat, and we'll pass it on to Rajit. And also, you know, we also have Rajit's LinkedIn uh, LinkedIn URL, so you can directly ping him and connect with him offline as well. I hope, Rajit, uh, you will also be a little bit uh, active on the Builders Club if you will, download the Discord app. And yes. hope you have a great weekend. Hope you all have a great weekend.